This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This week, Maryland megachurch pastor Harry Jackson passed away at age 65. Over the last four years, Jackson was a member of President Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board. That consulting team was a marked shift in the role that faith communities had played in the executive branch in recent decades. The focus in the Bush and Obama administrations, in contrast, had been on the ways that faith-based and community groups could work with the federal government on social problems and on hiring officials who would work on international religious freedom. What role will religious leaders, religious groups, and religion policy play in the Biden administration? What lessons might Biden take away from his presidential predecessors on how church and state can work together and how they should work separately? We wanted to discuss the future of faith in the Biden administration. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, this is a very interesting topic that I will say that I have never learned more about than during the six years that I've spent at CT. All these different acronyms and offices and the different roles that they have are things that I've learned a lot about doing reporting and interviewing. And I'm really curious about some of your thoughts about what the shape and contours of all of these will look like over the next four years. Religious freedom obviously was a major conversation in the you know campaign period. One of the things I appreciated was a few weeks ago, you know, before election day, the Brookings Institution put together a great report called The Time to Heal, A Time to Build, Recommendations for the Next Administration on Respecting Religious Freedom and Pluralism, Forging Civil Civil Society Partnerships, and Navigating Faith's Role in Foreign Policy. The main people behind that were Melissa Rogers, who had worked especially in the Obama years in the faith-based office there but has written quite a bit. I'm a fan. And E.J. Dion Jr., people largely probably know from his work at the Washington Post. There's a number of recommendations here that you know I'm, I'm not entirely in favor of. Brookings is definitely more progressive than I. But I think the kind of conversation that they had here, you know, kind of recommendations, whether it was going to be Trump or Biden, on ways to kind of refocus some of the conversation on how religious groups and the government can work together ways in which that can happen domestically, ways in which that can work internationally, really specific policy ideas, opening different offices, hiring certain positions, as you get from Brookings sometimes. Very wonky, which I love. Super specific, yeah. Super specific. I love, you know, you got to get specific to actually get a lot of things done. And especially, I think, in religious freedom, they say nice things about religious freedom, but then not to put actual seats at the table. That doesn't get you very far. I've been thinking about that kind of since the uh, report came off, glad it came out, glad that we're going to be talking about it today. And yeah, this is something that, you know, I've seen, I usually kind of reflect back on my 25 years at CT. But yeah, I I remember, you know, when Bush was elected and all of a sudden this kind of became a little more of a focus and, and kind of covering that for Christianity Today back 20 years ago. And even before that, in the, in the Clinton administration, there were 
these really interesting reports that came out, that you know, groups that kind of came together from the left and the right and said, look, we disagree on a lot of things. We're church and state in the schools and in, in government. But man, there's a lot that we agree on that people do not know that we agree on. You know, there's a lot of school principals, for example, that get really nervous about religion in the schools. You know, there were some great documents that came out with these huge, broad coalitions. They said, look, we agree on a bunch of stuff in here. We're, here's, here's our long list of things that we agree on. Those kinds of documents that came out near the end of the, of the Clinton, maybe middle of the Clinton administration, ended up being tremendously helpful in a lot of different ways and in some ways still useful for just folks who have jobs that connect to government to know like, okay, I don't have to like fear religion and I don't have to fear you know, violating church state rules at, at every turn that there's, that there's a lot that can be done here. So very few people have helped to talk about those rules and have helped to affirm and shape and boost some of those rules. But that's, you know, my, my 20 year history here at CT. What's your gut check on this stuff, Morgan? Yeah, I actually had a lot of like mini gut checks come up while you were just talking right now where I was thinking about how when I first read about these offices, probably through Christianity Today's coverage back in the 2000s, I was actually very confused about why the government might be reaching out to religion or religious groups in particular and the ways that they would be coordinated or involved. And I think I understand a little bit more of it now with regards to it's a lot of it is like engagement and good democracy and understanding how your citizens are feeling about different things and getting the pulse. And obviously religion is a huge way that Americans identify and feel very close to. And it's helped me kind of, I've just like developed this like appreciation for this apparatus over the years of being here at CT and understand more and more about it. The other thing I was going to say though, is that I actually was part of probably one of the biggest pushes that the Trump administration made in this space which was a religious freedom ministerial. And when I say part of, I mean, I attended it. And this one, they actually did a couple of years of it, but the one I attended was in 2018. I am very intrigued about whether the Biden administration will decide that they want to lead as intensely as I think the Trump administration really did want to lead in this area. So that's something that I'm definitely looking out for and I'm curious to see where it goes. All right, who's our guest today, Ted? Well, our guest is someone who has been working on this for many decades. Yeah, he's one of the best people on some of these questions. Stanley Carlson Thies is the founder and senior director uh, these days of the Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance, which is part of the Center for Public Justice. You've seen him quoted in Christianity Today many, many, many times. He's probably pushing three digits, I, I would think, at this stage in terms of references in Christianity Today. He served with the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives from the days when it first started in February 2001 until May 2002. And then he was later on a task force for President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And there's much more we could say, but for now, we will welcome him to Quick to Listen. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Stanley. Well, I'm really glad to join you, Morgan and Ted. I think I said before we started that I often listen to your podcast in an evening as I'm cleaning up in the kitchen after our days you know, living in our house. <laughs> and so that's been great to catch some of your topics. I'm really uh, glad to be on it myself at this point. So in other words, awesome. long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast to scrape off your burned cheese on. So you know, hopefully, I'm sure people are doing that right now as they listen. Could be. 
I want to start with a bit of a baseline question, I think, in, in, in some ways, which you know, we talked about earlier on, we talked about Obviously, what's what's hooking this? You know, even though we start talking about Harry Jackson, the, the real news here is is Biden and his victory. His speech on Saturday was really remarkably religious. So he talked a lot about you know how uh, uniting and healing the country was quote the work that God and history have called us to do. Of course, there were also these notable quotes from Ecclesiastes and a long quote that he closed his speech with, uh, quoting from the hymn "On Eagles' Wings." My takeaway from that was that's probably an indication that he does see religious faith as something that can help to unite America and not just divide America. But coming out of this campaign season, religion was also a major polarizing force in the kind of broader American culture, especially as evangelical Protestantism has been increasingly identified as the driving demographic force, at least in the uh, Trump-led Republican Party. So my question for you, is whether you think going into this Biden presidency, whether you think religious freedom, religion partnerships, and even kind of talking about religion, is that something that Biden is going to have to sell to be effective? Is that something he has to convince people on? Or do you think think that's something that there's already, you know, broad support for both in his native base kind of centrist Democrats or, or left of center Democrats, and also kind of the broader American populace. I mean, is this something that, that costs him political capital, or is this something that gains him political capital? So I like softball questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is a really complex topic, and, and if you don't mind, I'll just say a couple different things before I directly approach your question. Sure, sure. And uh, one of them is just to, to say, as, as you mentioned, Ted, the report from Brookings, it's called A Time to Heal, A Time to Build. It's well worth reading anybody who's interested in this kind of topic of how the federal government relates to religion, how it relates to the so-called faith-based initiative, you know, these religious groups that, along with secular groups, work with the government to serve people. There are parts of it I think are not right, but it's very thoughtful, thought-provoking, including on the question you just put. One thing that Melissa Rogers and E.J. Dion point out is that compared to 20 years ago when President Bush was organizing the first White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and related things, uh, compared to then, there's much more uh, of nuns, so people who are spiritual in some sense, but they don't identify themselves with a religious institution, a specific religious tradition, much more of that in general, but and certainly in the Democratic Party and more secularism. So people who just are, you know, quite resolutely, I'm not religious, I'm not spiritual, I have a different way to go. That's also very strong, stronger in the public, even stronger in the Democratic Party. And so these issues come in a different context now. Also, another really big change, of course, is the big development of LGBT activism and, you know, what's the federal government going to do about that? And those issues came up very strongly during the Obama administration and affected how the administration thought about religious freedom, about working with religion, and including about religion in overseas relationships. So it's a more complex time now, and I, I think we ought to recognize that. Back in the Clinton years, not just with important consensus statements like the one on 
religion in public schools, religion in the public, in the government workforce, but also right in the middle of Bill Clinton's years was the welfare reform law that included actual legal language to change the way the federal government related to religious organizations that deliver services. And that really set off you know, this kind of trend to say religion and religious organizations shouldn't be marginalized. They play a big role in people's lives. They play a big role in society. They're really important providers of services. The government ought to figure out how to work with them and not just kind of incidentally, if they happen to come to the table, that's fine, but we ought to make sure there are no barriers in their way, and we ought to see if we can construct uh, good partnerships with them along with secular groups. So there's a, a long history, and Melissa Rogers, E.J. John, and I and others have been talking together about these things going way back there. For, so this is you know more than 20 years of the federal government innovating uh, institutionally and legally, policy-wise, and uh, people outside of government thinking about this, what needs to be done. So I, I think it's really important to see that long sweep. And so one of the questions now is how much continuity there will be. I think there's also this important question of how much discontinuity did President Trump bring into something? And now are we going to go back to what was kind of a continuity or going to strike off in new directions? I'm sure we'll talk all about that. But before we do that, one thing I just wanted to point out that President-elect Biden, I think very similarly to, in their own ways, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, but differently from President Trump, President-elect Biden has a personal, extensive experience with actually faith-based organizations that provide services along with worship communities. You know, President Trump has a connection with a lot of religious leaders. He had a connection with some churches, but his background, as far as I've ever been able to determine, didn't really involve extensive working as, as a business person or in his private life with you know, Catholic charities or Jewish social services or Southern Baptist Relief Services or anything like that. You may have known about those things, but that I think was not his personal experience. Whereas these other presidents all had a much more hands-on grasp of you know these organizations and what they do out in life. President Trump's different experience in part helps to understand how he took a different path. And then why I think that President-elect Biden might go back to more like the path that was there before of the faith-based initiative as really being centrally about how the government relates to faith-based as well as other organizations that deliver services or play such an important part in the community and less about kind of government and religion or government and religious leaders as such. And so we'll have to see if that happens. I think it will be a good thing if it happens. So, so Stanley, I, I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the ways that faith institutions and groups ended up interacting with the Trump administration, especially with regards to how that was unique or really different compared to how it looked under the Obama or Bush administrations. To my mind, we have a kind of a three-dimensional thing here, right? Because on the one hand, voters themselves, many of them are people of faith. They give messages to the government. People in government, many of them are faith of one kind or another. So they're operating based on faith. So I think one of the questions that's been put in the air over the last couple of decades is, should there be some other kind of channel that people of faith, faith organizations, you know, kind of have some kind of input and in, in what should that look like? And that's not actually the way the faith-based initiative first started. You know, it began back in the 
Clinton years with the this understanding that because of the kinds of constitutional interpretations and government practice there was, the federal government didn't work very effectively with faith-based organizations that you know provide services in their neighborhood. And it would be better if that relationship was strengthened, clarified, and so on, through a process of legal change during the Clinton years, and then President Bush starting the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and centers of faith-based and community initiatives and major federal departments, a lot of work was done on the kind of terms and conditions under which the federal government worked with faith organizations along with secular organizations to provide services to people in need and in disaster response and all those kinds of things. When President Obama came along, he continued all that. And then I think he he thought, well, th- that's good building this, this relationship, but people of faith and other leaders as well, nonprofit leaders, also may have something to say to the government about how that partnership could be better, but also about helping to inform the federal government's general operations. How does it tackle poverty? What does it do about climate change and things like that? So President Obama created something that President Bush had not done, which was the advisory council, the president's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And that group was tasked in part to think about the nitty gritty of how the government worked with faith and community groups in its grant making process and so on to provide services, drug treatment, and but in part to ask big questions about the government and environmental issues, the government and poverty relief, the government, how does it decrease violence, help young people. And, and so a kind of a tradition was started of having voices advising the federal government through this advisory council on big picture issues. That's the one piece that was really strongly picked up by President Trump, except that he didn't have a formal advisory council. He had a kind of informal evangelical advisory group that he turned to when he when he wanted advice. And you know that that was kind of controversial with people. Yeah. Kind of- Could you talk a little bit about like what is the significance, I guess, of the informality part of it? Like, are there particular, yeah. Yeah. So there are a number of things. So one of them is it it was informal. So it was called when convenient, uh, various people were invited, not invited. It wasn't an official body. If it had been an official body, like President Obama's advisory council, then there are actual official rules about what you have to do. When can you call meetings? You have to record the minutes. Is this going to be open to the public, not open to the public? Who do you appoint to it? Do they have a conflict of interest? And can two or three of them meet when other people are not meeting and then kind of make decisions? Or can you not do that? And so that kind of formal advisory framework was not there with President Trump's more informal uh, advisory group. Now, I think every president has a lot of informal advisors, right? And that's not problematic. And they're not necessarily diverse. They're the people that he or she eventually trust. And that's perfectly fine. But if you're kind of having an advisory council to advise the government about policy, then it ought to be a transparent, the records ought to be kept, people ought to have a chance to see what it's deciding and so on. I think what President Trump created was kind of halfway in between. It was it had a bigger role than just a few people he called up once in a while, but it wasn't structured to be open, to keep records, to be representative but it was more a set of people that he felt comfortable talking with. And I think for a lot of people on the outside, they looked at that and said, hey, that's not quite fair. Why do all those voices, part of evangelicalism, get to 
talk to the president all the time about things and the rest of us don't have this other same kind of special access. So I think that was a, a matter of controversy. Then I think many observers, and I, I share this, felt like it became, you know, as it were, a pipeline to his part of his base and not in the same sense a advisory council for government policy, but more a way to lift him up politically. And that's a different kind of thing. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. One of the ways that we've we've talked about the the ways that these partnerships can go between faith-based groups and the government is all the areas that are open for collaboration and working on social problems in particular. To what extent would you say that we have been able to see some of those partnerships reinvested in or built up again with regards to fighting COVID? And what possibilities might you see with regards to that in the strategy for the next administration? Not as much has been done as could be done in response to COVID-19, which is, of course, a, a multi-faceted phenomenon, right? So it's the public health thing itself, and and what about the testing and eventual vac- vaccination and so on, but also all these effects, some of them directly economic, but some of them kind of the the loneliness and the mental illness and things like that. And the Trump administration has worked at that to some significant degree. I, I can't tell you, you know, how significant, but I know they've worked at that, particularly through the Department of Health and Human Services Center for, it's now called the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives. So that's the kind of center there that goes all a bit the way back to the Bush years. And so there are people there who have, have engaged faith organizations, community groups over the several decades now. So they've reached out to them worked with them on how they can identify 
how neighbors, neighborhoods might be suffering because of COVID-19, not just economically, but in other ways and what they might do to step in, how they can help provide good information and be trustworthy and, and all those kinds of things. I think that's been good. It's also been a positive thing that in the CARES Act, that's kind of like the really big piece of COVID-19 financial response that, that Congress passed back in early April, I think it was, that governors were given a certain amount of money, each governor, that could be given out, awarded in grants to organizations that would propose ways to deal with aspects of the COVID-19 crisis that weren't being adequately dealt with by the normal government programs, right? So the government helps to fund uh, low-income childcare and, of course, has a lot of investments in schools and, and health clinics and so on and so on. But you just kind of know in the middle of all that, there are people who get left out or there are new needs because of COVID-19 or because of economic stress. And, and governors were given money that they could decide how would this best help in my state. And then a number of governors have run competitions in which then they ask community groups, including often very specifically faith organizations, to propose what they could do if they had some extra money to help out neighbors who were in stress. And I, I think the fact that anybody kind of thought about doing that kind of thing is a, a reflection of these now more than two decades of the government seeing faith groups and community groups as partners, as resources out there that are doing things that the government's regular programs don't necessarily do so well. That was a good sign. I think some states were well prepared to respond in that way with that governor's funding because over the decades, they had built up their own kind of faith-based initiative, as it were. Even some very blue states had gotten used to working with community groups, including religious groups. And now they turned to them and said, what, are, what can you do that's unique? So that's a sign of a kind of a, a resource that I think back in the 90s and 80s and 70s, even though the government often did partner in certain sense with some types of religious groups, it didn't really see them as unique kinds of resources. It saw them more as you know, maybe the same kind of purveyor of services as somebody else, but not as having particular strengths because of the kind of organizations they were. Let's talk about what things those partnerships are good at and what things they may not be good at. And so, you know, one of the issues I think that's, you know, front and center on, on many people's minds is racial justice. I mean, clearly Biden is eager very much to address what he said on Saturday is that, you know, what the phrase I think he used was the, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country. And I'm wondering if there are ways for the federal government and religious institutions to work together on that. Is that something that an office of faith-based and community initiatives can really move the dial on? Or is that something that's more of an area where you're mostly going to have government policies on criminal justice or economic policy on one side and churches working to change hearts and minds on another side. You know, I'm wondering how similar is it to like a partnership common, like when I think about partnership common ground, I immediately think of refugee resettlement, homeless shelters, some of these issues. When I think about racial justice and rooting out systemic racism, it's probably a lack of imagination, but I'm just wondering, you know, how much is that likely to be something that's in a faith-based and community initiative office, and how much is that maybe two different tracks? Isn't it the case that the racial injustice addressing that, addressing systemic issues, it's an extremely complicated, multi-layered phenomenon? So on the one side, you know, there are actual legal policies and private institutions policies that 
ought to be better legally regulated that can ensure equity and you know equal opportunity and things like that. But there are also a lot of other dimensions that have to do with whether neighbors recognize each other as neighbors or just as you know citizens that are competitors or maybe even untrustworthy or we can't live together or whatever. So it seems to me that actually a significant part of better addressing these issues does have to do with let's call it civil society. So that means religious groups and and secular groups that help help a community to to think about how it's working, that actually extend a hand outwards to people who need assistance, and then actually kind of knit people together in common projects or in addressing areas of need. I think myself that we could address some of the deep racial inequities to do a better job at education. And I know how to resolve the education issue is a controversial thing, but does seem to be the case that there's a significant role here for religious schools, private schools of different kinds that have some kind of specific task and dedication to some part of the, the spectrum of people, some kinds of neighborhoods, some ways of going about things. And to find a way to energize them in an equitable way, I think means working at this interface between government policy and these institutions of civil society that go beyond public schools. So I think that would be an area where to actually address racial inequity in a full-orbed way, the government ought to proceed down these lines. You know, what, one thing that I said to the President Trump's faith-based people in, in the faith-based centers, that I thought that their desire to, in their own way, find a way to bridge some of the gaps out in society would be really helped if they would work intensively at opening the door to partnerships between government and a wide range of faith as well as secular groups. Because in the kind of work that groups do in communities, it's based on faith, but it's an outreach to other people. So it's not a kind of a proselytizing relationship. It's not a us versus you relationship. It's kind of like, here's a a need that we're addressing. You're addressing that need. Can we work together at it? By coming at some of these things from the angle of service, as opposed to you know where we're most different, which is kind of in worship or in our religious communities, as opposed into our community-facing service areas, by working at that service angle, the administration helps draw people together. And I think the Trump administration didn't really see that as much as they could have. And I'm hoping that the Biden administration will. I think we, we should say this that one of the challenges the Biden administration is going to face in in this area is the question of, you know, is religious freedom just a cover for discrimination? And if the federal government's going to be giving money to groups, is it going to have to keep out certain kinds of groups because they don't have the right views about sexuality, something like that? And that's going to be a real significant issue that the administration has to address because the government can't work very effectively with faith groups or even other kinds of community groups if it's requiring them to kind of adopt a standardized government way of doing things, right? It's kind of in their independence, the way they're rooted in a particular community, the way they reflect particular values that they have, their that the way they flourish and the way they can speak to their own community. And so somehow that has to be left intact. So the next administration is going to have to figure out, despite these new device, divisive issues, a different religious landscape, how does it connect 
well with a wide range of different kinds of groups that are quite different in themselves, but they all want to contribute to the common good in their own unique way. Stanley, <laughs> you're definitely hitting on some stuff that we should we will come back to and lean into later in this discussion because I definitely think that there's always this like inherent tension when you're trying to engage all these different groups. And I thought you made a great point too about the fact that they all have, in many ways, they believe that they're serving the common good, but have different kind of definitions of that. I did want to pivot in this part right here, though, to talk about international religious freedom, which I mentioned at the top and as part of my gut check, something that the Trump administration has really decided to lean in on and focus on in particular and kind of make a hallmark of their administration. To what extent would you say that the Trump administration was really successful in leading in this area? And to what extent do you think that this is something that the Biden administration will want to kind of yes and as they do their work? I think there's been some significant steps forward to what extent the Biden administration will want to just continue them as opposed to significantly changing them. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but maybe it's worth kind of thinking about this, that there has been a strong engagement of faith organizations in U.S. foreign policy, U.S. foreign aid that goes back certainly very strongly to the post-World War II period with you know, all these countries that were laid waste and the federal government deciding with the Marshall Plan and other ways, wanting to play a positive role in building up these countries again from the ruin of war. It looked out there and realized that you know, many of the players out there were religious, whether it's Episcopalians or Jew, uh, Jewish organizations, Mormons and Protestants and so on. So it entered into these partnerships with them. So for a long time, there's coming out of the State Department, the side of it that has to do with overseas release, relief and development, there was this, you know, quite strong partnership with faith organizations of all kinds, you know, including Franklin Graham's Samaritan's Purse on the one side and, you know, very secular groups on the other side. The State Department itself seemed to be pretty tone deaf to religion and the fact that many of the countries that the diplomats were working with and problems that they were dealing with, that these problems often had a religious side to them. You know, religious communities were involved, religious leaders might be solutions to problems and so on. So a lot of work has been done with the International Religious Freedom Act to bring into the State Department's, let's call it the foreign policy, the diplomatic side, an understanding of faith and how important that is in life. Religious freedom is really important, not just because for, say, religious believers who say, I want to be free, don't suppress me, but because religion is so important in many people's lives that when governments suppress it, don't give it room, then it's a source of conflict rather than a way that people can find some common ground despite their differences. And so a lot of work has been done over 20 plus years with an international religious freedom ambassador and so on, trainings offered to diplomats to try to build up the understanding of the faith role. And so that's been happening over the years. It happened during the Bush years. It happened during the Obama years. During the Obama years, there was this, a new office created in the Office of Secretary of State that was you know, a religious representative that could help the Secretary of State always keep in mind that when he was talking to a counterpart, he or she was talking to a counterpart, that the counterpart was came represented a country that itself had you know, diverse religions or was trying to suppress religion or whatever. That kind of knowledge would be important in thinking about that interrelationship. So during the Obama years, actually, in some sense, a religious knowledge was 
increased. And now with President Trump, I think we've seen two very significant things on the international front. One of them is that the uh, international ambassador, Sam, Sam Brownback, has been holding regular meetings with a wide range of faith organizations in the United States and sometimes international to just talk about issues that are coming up about international religious freedom, whether you know the suppression of freedom in this country or some way that some other governments figured out how to deal with some of these issues or whatever. That's kind of a constant conversation with academic experts, leaders of religious communities, leaders of faith-based organizations. And then now for the State Department to host these ministerials, I think the third one is next Monday and Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. You could say kind of a, a ramping up of the role of understanding of religion within the foreign policy apparatus of the United States and in its relationship with other governments. But then now with the Trump administration, putting religious freedom itself as right to the front, because that's what the ministerial has done, is to not just say, take note of the fact that your country has many religious traditions and you have to figure out how to work together and we're all going to share how we do it. I think that's part of it. But a part of it is this message that religious freedom is a really important part of good government policy, whether you're a religious believer or not. If you want to deal well with people of conscience, people of different faith traditions, they're in your society, somehow you have to take account of this. Will the Biden administration say, in our relationship to other countries, we want to make religious freedom such a leading aspect of it? Or will there be a kind of reconfiguration in which the Biden administration says, you know, there are a number of things we think are really important. If we're trying to help other countries better govern themselves, deal with other countries on a more fair basis, then religious freedom is part of it. But aren't there other things as well, whether that's LGBT equity or that's racial equity or dealing with resource differences? So my guess is that there'll be a, a reevaluation of how much the religious freedom language and emphasis has been brought to the fore. I hope it doesn't disappear, though, because it seems to me it really is an important dimension of statecraft, of di diplomacy, and not just of kind of on the ground relief and development work. There was some criticism when the Trump administration kind of collapsed those two internationally focused offices, right? When it closed its office of religion and global affairs, and just focused on the Office of International Religious Freedom. A lot of people saying, yes, uh, you know, international religious freedom is super important, but you know, not everything that is religion and government, it's about the relationship between religious, religion and government, is necessarily collapsible into a discussion of religious freedom. goes back a little bit to what you were talking about before, about the, the kind of baggage that religious freedom and religious liberty have taken as terms. You are director of an organization that is, you know, about institutional religious freedom that is very much emphasizing both sides of that First Amendment question. The your religious freedom is a question of both the free exercise of religion and also of in, avoiding uh, government establishment and entanglement with religion. Is there a concern that we too often collapse our thinking about these things in terms of religious freedom? I mean, or is religious freedom such a big Thing lurking behind every conversation we have about these issues, that that it's important to kind of have a religious freedom label or eye on every, on everything that we're doing. The report that Melissa Rogers and E.J. Dion wrote, I, I thought it was interesting and important that they talk in there about religious freedom and they talk about church-state relations. 
and so religious freedom that's that's kind of like the emphasis on the government is there to not to suppress religious exercise but not to protect it then that's kind of a challenge because there are all these different religions and they don't necessarily think the same and what about secular interests and so on so that's a conundrum but the government our government's supposed to protect religious exercise so there's a strong religious freedom thing but there's also this just more generally the fact that all kinds of things that the government does impinge upon religion religious institutions religious people to have an understanding of of what that is even if you're not trying to you know promote religious freedom you're not really thinking about the freedom part of it you're just kind of thinking about what reality is i think to have a sensitivity to the to this dimension is really important so one thing that the faith based initiative did was to kind of open up the eyes of many actually people in nonprofit management, you know, sociology, statistics, and so on, and in government policymaking and and legal circles, that when they looked out there and saw this whole world of nonprofit organizations, they often weren't paying attention to the fact that a lot of them were religious. Well, the fact that they were religious just meant that they were a little bit different than the other ones. They operated just a little bit differently. They had kind of different source of relationship with their donors and and all that kind of stuff. So just to understand the religious dimension by itself kind of opens your eyes. And then the next question would be, well, how much freedom or the opportunity to be different should they have? And then that maybe takes us to the other level of religious freedom. So I think to have an office in the secretary's office, uh, Sean Casey was was uh, headed that in Secretary Kerry's office. That it was always reminding the secretary that when you think about France, you know France has a particular history of church-state relationships, and it it's gotten very complicated because of all the Muslim immigration. What about Muslims who think they're or they're convinced that their faith ought to govern their lives, and but France has this idea of everything that's public ought to be secular. And so there are these continual clashes. Well, Secretary Kerry, if you're going to be talking to the French, you ought to be aware that this is one of the dimensions of life and and policy and history in France. And so don't forget that. I think that was a, a really useful educational kind of thing. So I would be glad if an office like that returned. That's not promoting any particular point of view. It's kind of promoting, let's call it religious literacy. And that's you know, really useful thing if you're working in this extremely a part of government, namely Secretary of State, that has to deal with extremely diverse countries that are internally diverse, but they're very different from each other. And religion's a very important part of that diversity. Well, you mentioned this uh, Brookings report and maybe some areas that you agree with and disagree with. You know, I, I think one area where I, I, I bumped, and again, I, I, I agree that's a fantastic report, discussion of, of Fairness for All Act, there's the Equality Act, and again, this is uh, something that you've written extensively on, and this is legislation that's been proposed in Congress on kind of negotiating some of the relationships between religious liberty and also LGBT uh, issues as well, some of those freedoms. The networks behind who has lined up behind what are fairly complicated, and we don't need to get into all of that now, but suffice to say that There is the Equality Act, uh, which is supported more by strong LGBT groups and the progressive left. There's Fairness for All, which is supported by some LGBT folks and has a number of Christian institution support, including the 
coalition of Christian colleges and, and universities and some other key organizations. And then there's uh, other Christian groups that have kind of opposed uh, both of these things. For those of our listeners who don't know, so in late October, when polls were showing, you know, a stronger Biden showing, Biden reiterated his promise to enact the Equality Act, not just over the Fairness for All Act, but to enact it within his first 100 days. It does seem the late October and mid-November are different, looking very different political, politically. You know, if there indeed is a Republican majority Senate, it looks significantly less possible to enact that within the first 100 days. But I'm wondering, from your perspective as someone who's looked a lot at Fairness for All, given the makeup of the Senate right now, is that good news for Fairness for All? Do, we, do you think that Biden is hostile to Fairness for All? Are we more or less where we've been kind of for years trying to just negotiate these things and probably having legislation stuck in Congress? What's your, what's your outlook on Fairness for All? One, one thing to say about Congress is that it's not been legislating hardly anything for quite a while. And so will that change now? We got COVID-19 one round, you know, a couple rounds of legislation because it was such an emergency. We get annual budgets very irregularly because they have to be done. We get a National Defense Appropriations Act because it just has to be done and not a whole lot of other things. So I think that's going to be one of the questions is after more than just four years of finding it hard to bridge gaps, will Congress now find a way to do that? And on what kinds of issues will it? You know, when I think about things like that, then I, I think, well, you know, Fairness for All, which tries to at the same time work out in legislative form, not just as a matter of principles, but in legislative form across all kinds of important areas of federal government policy, how LGBT people can be protected very strongly so they don't just get fired from a job and so on. But at the same time, religious exercise and religious organizations are protected very strongly so that they can keep their sense of what their values are, that they feel compelled by, by God to follow that. And they want it to be an example to the world that they can keep that and try to work that out in legislation instead of you know throwing it to the Supreme Court and hoping it rules your way. And and the Supreme Court, as it often has said about these issues, you know we can't really work out the fine details here. Maybe somebody else should look at this. And I think that that ought to be Congress. When Congress is kind of evenly divided, isn't that exactly a time when people should come together and say, well, what can we do here that's good for the particular interests of both sides to a maximal extent. You know, it's also very easy to say we're evenly divided. Maybe the next election will push us over the top and then we won't have to compromise. So we don't know kind of which voice is going to come to the fore. The president-elect did say he wanted to see the Equality Act passed in the first hundred days. I think because of the Senate being most likely remaining Republican, or even if it becomes half and half, Senator Manchin has said he's not going to vote for a change of the rules that would get rid of the filibuster. So that effectively will mean a need for 60 votes to pass legislation. And it just does not seem that there are enough Republicans who would say not just that they want to see LGBT rights elevated, which there are certainly, I, I'm sure there are at least 10 senators who want to see that happen, but they don't want the collateral damage done to religious exercise, religious organizations. You know, the filibuster, if it stays in place, will keep the Equality Act from moving forward. Will that open up space for people to say, well, let's see, here's legislation that's been 
worked through the mill for four years with all kinds of experts, maybe it's a pretty good piece of legislation we ought to do. And it wouldn't freeze everything into place. It would just mean that religious communities, for example, would continue this internal process of saying, are we wrong about this? Should we do something different? But it would stabilize their place in which they can make that decision. In the meantime, uh, somebody who works for Walmart and gets married over the weekend doesn't have to worry that their supervisor is going to fire them because of a notice in the newspaper or something like that. I think the Fairness for All Act also would, it's going to require religious organizations to really think carefully about what it is they believe and why they believe it. And are they being consistent in what they say they believe, or are they just finding an excuse to get rid of certain people or to not engage certain communities? So this is a, a great moment to confront this issue if the two sides decide they want to do that. And whether President Biden now, as he said, he wants to be a uniter, he wants to be a president for everybody, I think this would be a perfect policy as a way to do it. I'm hopeful. Certainly, there's a lot of discussion going on advocacy. We don't know what's going to actually happen, though. But l- let me just add one note. The actual Fairness for All legislation, 60, 70 pages, something like that, because it has to deal with housing and public accommodations and you know how you define religion, religious organizations. What does that mean if it's employment in a secular organization or religious organization, and what's it mean in jury selection and so on. It took a great deal of work and many different kinds of lawyers, experts, and consulting with LGBT groups and with religious groups to see what that ought to be like. And so now it's available for people to take it up and say, is this a good idea or not? But it did take all that work. And so I think all of us that worked on it could not foresee would it ever pass or not, But I think we were all convinced that if a moment came when people said, let's find a way to work together instead of just hoping one of these days we'll get it our way and not your way, that there had to be the language available. And so we did it, kind of, I did it as an act of faith, and hopefully it will be a good gift to the American public. As we wrap our conversation, Stanley, I am really interested in hearing from you about the ways that you think or the ways that innovation can play a role in, with regards to the ways that government would engage religious and faith groups? There are going to have to be changes, if only because you know the LGBT issues is very prominent now in a way it wasn't in the past because of the many increasing percentage of Americans, as I said, you know, who aren't Southern Baptists. Uh, they still have some spirituality, but it's not that. And also, all those, so the secularist people. So I think the let's call it the religious freedom conversation itself, has to, I think, on the one side, be kind of expanded out to a freedom of conscience, or or let's make sure that those other voices are also heard. But also, it seems to me really important these days, even more than in the past, for people who want to protect religious freedom to be really thinking hard and to be in dialogue with people who are worried that if you protect religious freedom so strong, it's going to hurt their interests, whether they're gay people or some other interests that they, they're worried about. And to just say, well, it's, it's in the First Amendment, it's really important, we're going to protect it. I don't know that that really gives the best way forward. So I think the faith-based offices, whatever, however they're reconfigured, officials that staff positions that deal with religion, I think they're going to have to think about these things in a more complex ways than when I was in the faith-based office back in 2001, to realize that there are more voices that have to be part of the conversation, best to have them 
part of the conversation from the beginning instead of not listening to them and they have to find their way to kind of stop you or force themselves in at the end. I think it's better to have them in at the beginning. So let's call it a more conversation that really pushes out towards the pluralism that we have become and is not just religion and secularity or just religious institutions and and government. Wow. So much good stuff in here. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us, Stanley. I think there's a lot for people to digest with regards to just the history, but also to some of the bigger ideas that you're talking about. So for folks who have opinions and reactions to some of the stuff that was shared, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianneedtoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is the opportunity that everyone has to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Go Ted, for it, Morgan. Oh, you want what me to go? has brought you joy? He's like, do not make me go first. No, I can go. I mean, I can go, but you know, I always go first. You go first this week. All right. Well, there's actually a number of things and I will try to winnow it down a little bit. I will just say that the city of Chicago has brought me a lot of joy. That is a very broad category and I recognize it. I wanted to give a shout out to a couple things though. One, I went to a park, the same park twice this weekend. It is called Lincoln Park. It is a park in a part of the city that I just feel like I have to be intentional to head over there. But I really wanted to go this weekend because as many as you know, the weather was fantastic. This park is just so beautiful. I love the trees. There are so many people that were walking their dogs out and about and also enjoying nature, which I have to say, seeing people outside is something that constantly rejuvenates me. Also, just piles of leaves (laughs) also make me happy as well. So I was grateful that I went to that park not once, but twice. Then last night, I also walked around the neighborhood, which is also called Lincoln Park, went to this bookshop that was extremely epic. At one point, I think in some of the shelves, there were like 10 shelves stacked on top of each other full of books, which is felt very, I don't know, straight out of some sort of children's book that you might see in terms of its character. In fact, the outside of the bookstore, it was unclear if it was even possible to get into the bookstore based on the amount of books smashed against the side of the window. So I love bookstores like that. That's so great. Right. It's the type of thing that you're like, please, please, please make it through COVID. (laughs) I'd be so sad if you did not make it through COVID. That was a good moment. And then just another slice of life part of Chicago things on the same walk, but completely different neighborhood. I have bangs, which are getting too long. And I've been trying to figure out when and how to get them cut. And there was a woman, she was the only person in the salon. I was like, I really need to get these my bangs cut. I talked to her for a long time and <laughs> I tried to get her, like I have tried many, many people before to get her to run for public office and see herself as part of the solution to some of the stuff that was frustrating her about COVID, which I don't know. That's one of my hobbies is to try to convince people to do that. And she actually said she would think about it, which is more than many of my friends say to me when I tell them that. So that was a very fun moment as well. So I don't know, just little vignettes of things that I've been up to. And I'm so grateful for the weather being nice for things like walks and stuff. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. My precious moment this week also had to do with the warm weather. I mean, you know, it, it is it is mid-November. And so it is precious here in Chicago to have warmth and to be outside. And so I have been missing church like crazy. Our church is still, you know, we're an Anglican church. And Anglican church services are very tactile. And 
So for a lot of reasons, we, we have not met in person since the uh, epidemic started back in was it March, I guess, April. But what was nice is we did have some folks over, a family over on, on Saturday. We, our church meets Saturday night. We were able to pull the TV onto the backyard, say socially distanced, and mask, but to actually be able to worship with people <laughs> is a real lovely thing. So, you know, our families enjoyed doing, you know, family worship. And, and, and I do appreciate that our church, you know, has had an attitude of if, if it's not going to be in person, if we're, we can't all be in the same place at the same together, we will all be in the same time together. So we've really minimized kind of the recordings and that kind of thing. So, you know, live sermon, live worship, you know, live, live music, just all, you know, Zoomed. And I appreciate that, but it was nice to actually, you know, sing with other people. And when we passed the peace, actually, you know, we still couldn't touch, but still be like, hey, peace be with you. So that was fantastic. You probably felt even a little emotional, no? Just thinking about all It's not the first time we've done it, but it was, you know, and it's, it, I guess one of the nice things was, you know, they're fairly new to the area. They moved out here at the beginning of the fall. You know, they haven't been to our church yet for like, quote unquote, real church yet. It was kind of like knowing they, they're in a, they must be in a lonelier spot than us because, you know, they're, they just moved out here and don't have as many people to, to hang with. So. But yeah, it was lovely. Um, it's it, it truly precious, right? <laughs> it was, yeah, a truly, truly a precious moment. And as I'm talking to you, my yard is blowing like crazy. I just saw one of my downspouts blow across the yard. So that's not great. But yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently time is up here. So here comes winter. The warmth is done. But hey, it was great while it lasted. I am online at Twitter at Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. Stanley, what is your precious moment? Yeah, you had uh, both such nice, wonderful stories. I'm, I'm just going to say two things uh, relatively briefly. One of them is election process is not over, and there's some menace, questions, doubts in the air, and so on. But still to think about it, we went through a really complex, a huge voting process over the last few weeks. And, you know, things have held up pretty well. People, you know, went to their polling places or they figured out how to mail in their ballots or, you know, all those kinds of things. And lawyers have been looking at things the way lawyers do. And that's the way the system's set up. All these things, I think they're a sign of kind of common grace in our society created by people, sometimes Christians, sometimes people of other faiths. They just kind of understood that in the world God's given us, we need government. We have to have a way of changing power, a way of selecting leaders. We've come up with a pretty resilient, robust system. I think that's just a wonderful blessing. And to see it play out, whether you like the particular outcome in this race or that, we should remember the, the greater good of having a peaceful way and the wonder of being able to influence who our leaders are. You know, That's just pretty rare down through history and even around the world now. So that's one thing, to, just to see that in, in process. My Institutional Religious Freedom Alliance, we're part of the Center for Public Justice. Center for Public Justice has been doing a prayer series from just before the election till the day after inauguration. And this is one of the things we're praying about is was for the election process, now for the counting and all that going on, the people will be taking office. And you know the great good this is, people taking on these roles and, and being part of that process and that it, that it worked the way it did, despite 
problems, small problems in the process. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, every fall, I am just blown away by the fact that God arranged it. I'm, I'm going to use that, that language. God arranged it so that when leaves on trees die, they turn these brilliant, beautiful colors. So in the spring, when they come forth, when, when life comes back in the spring, we see all these flowers and blossoms and green leaves, different shades of green. It's just glorious. But then when they go away in the fall, the, the trees, you know, we, we get this glorious display again. And I could just imagine if I was doing this all by CGI and having to think it up, if I thought that leaves had to fall off trees, I think they would just turn kind of different shades of black or something like that. Instead, they're these gorgeous, beautiful colors. And so that kind of reminds me that even if we're going into this period of hibernation and things are slowing down, downspouts, you know, blow across your yard, you're going to have to shovel snow, maybe not so much around here in Annapolis. So we're going to go through some hard times, but this kind of blaze of even on the way out, on, on the dying of the trees, that it's so glorious. And it lifts our hearts so much when you go out and walk in it and see it. And kids go out there and kick around the piles of leaves and so on. It's just wonderful. And it always reminds me of God's overflowing goodness and, and blessing. And may we have more of that in the future. So, and if you want to contact me, the easiest way is just to go to this, the Center for Public Justice website because IRFA is, is part of that. And that's uh, CP Justice, one word, cpjustice.org. And uh, I encourage you to do it. We'll put the link to that in our show notes as well. So thank you so much for this, Stanley. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Mia Shola does the transcript and the music is done by Sweeps. For those of you who have questions, thoughts, feedback, reactions, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianvtoday.com. And you can also go on Twitter if you prefer that medium instead. We're at CT Podcasts. If you have bigger picture thoughts and reactions, go on to Apple Podcasts, write us a review. Love reading those. Thank you, everyone, for your encouraging words over there. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.